The following talk was given at the Insight Meditation Center in Redwood City, California. Please visit our website at audiodharma.org. It all sounds like too much, <laughs> which is truly appropriate for what I want to talk about tonight, which is too much, too much practice. So uh, tonight what I'd like to talk about is the practice of just being. Practice of just being. So this afternoon I was reading a book, a new book by a, a good friend of mine called Life's Last Gift. And it's about being with people when they're dying and, and bringing peace to both you and them. And in this book... He referred to a phrase that came from Aldous Huxley's The Island, which is a very obscure novel that I loved, but I haven't seen in a lot of years. And the phrase was, the excruciating presence of absence. The excruciating presence of absence. And it occurred to me that that phrase was an exquisite description of what it is like to lose someone. And the rawness of it can only be felt if you too have lost something or someone or anticipate losing someone. And it made me think of uh, the mass shooting that we had just last Sunday where someone came in and killed all those people in a church in a small town in Texas. And today I read that they're not going to reopen the church because nobody could stand to be there. Uh, the pastor made the announcement, and the past, one of the victims was the pastor's daughter. And the deacon that was giving the sermon was killed and seven or eight of his family members. I mean, you know that those people know the excruciating presence of absence. And it got me thinking about how we occupy our moments. How do we occupy our lives? How do we inhabit our lives? And that one of the ways that we do that is by developing our capacity for mindfulness, for being present, and we spend a lot of time thinking about how we're going to do that. You know, I'm going to sit, and I'm going to meditate, and I'm going to meditate this way, and I'm going to do it this way. And one of the things that happens, that also happened when I was considering that phrase this afternoon is, oh, I should be better. And everything in life becomes a self-improvement project. And we have to... we. we begin to engage in the practice so that we become better at the practice. However, whatever that practice form is. And at some time, we have to be able to ex experience the excruciating presence of absence. The actual being present in one's life. Now, that's a, that particular phrase is painful. One could just as well talk about the excruciating presence of extreme happiness doesn't have quite the same ring because it's not as alliterative, but it is nevertheless about really being present in the moment. And it's very easy to lose track of why we're practicing. 
and spend too much time worrying about how we're practicing, exactly what we're doing. And we put all of our emphasis on doing it right and maybe not being good enough. You know, most of us take up this practice with the hope that we're going to improve our lives in some way. You know, there's a a sense of this will be good for me and for the people around me and for the world in general. There's, there's kind of a, you know, I, whether it, you come at it from the point of view of relaxing or changing your life in some way. So the other thing on this book that I was reading on the back, on the book jacket, was a quote referring to the book, of course, by Ira Bayok, who is a well-known psychologist, I think he's, I know he's in Southern California. I'm not quite sure what university he's associated with, but he's well known in end of life circles. And he talked about what was brought clear in the book was that the, the activity transforms the concerns from a problem to be solved to a journey to be walked. From a problem to be solved to a journey to be walked. And I thought, you know, that's how I want my practice to be. I want it to be a journey I'm making and not a problem to be solved. It's really easy to get stuck in that efforting phase, you know. I call it the tyranny of improvement. You know, I've got to improve. I've got to be better. I've got to have better things. I have to have a better body. I have to have a better relationship. Everything has to be better. And if it's not better, somehow it's not good enough. So we lose, we lose the, the value of just, just this, just this, because we're putting so much effort into being better. I have a responsibility to do this. So all of us have known the, uh, someone the voices that come, either from ourselves or our parents or our friends or, you know, people who want something from us, who urge us on to better things. And we tend to react in one of two ways. One is we embrace it and we say, yes, I have a responsibility, I should do this, and, and we get involved in that process. Or we resist it and say, don't tell me how I should be. And we start pushing it away and we don't, We won't do anything like we're supposed to do. So then it turns out that we develop a whole lot of mind habits around that. And without thinking of it, as soon as we're doing engaged in some process, we want to be good at it. Or we're going to give it up. Hmm. So then when we take up mindfulness practice either as a meditation or mindfulness in daily life, we want to be good at it. We want to be good at it, and if we're not good at it, well, we're going to give it up. So I want to ask how many people in this room have been meditating for, oh, I don't know, more than a year? Most. So I'm going to invite you to be like the people who did not raise their hands, just for a moment, And imagine that you don't have the practice, that you haven't been meditating for a long time, that you don't really know what happens when you start following your breath. 
And I want you to close your eyes. Just close your eyes. And I want you to see if you can experience the space around you. Just the space around you. What is your experience of the space around you? Does it seem close to your body? Are you picturing something the size of a room? What is your experience of the space? And now I want you to listen very carefully to what is the farthest away sound you can hear. Okay, so you can open your eyes. Now, you know, there was some traffic that came up at the time I asked that question. It could have been otherwise. You might not have heard anything outside this room. But what that means is that you, your awareness can go out at least that far. And sometimes when we start thinking about meditating, we spend a lot of time really narrowing our focus down to this breath and feeling this breath. And we are deliberately lowering our experience down to this experience. And there's a good reason for doing that. But we're excluding everything else that's possible in our awareness when we do that. The fact that it's deliberate doesn't change the fact of it. Now, the reason this came up is that uh, there is an online course. And so today I was talking to a number of people who are taking the Introduction to Mindfulness Meditation course. And um, one of the reasons I like mentoring people for that course is they ask really great questions. (laughs) And they challenge me to consider what my practice is like now and to see it through their eyes, which is very different. So uh, one of the women this morning said, um, so I just could not stay with my breath. It was impossible to stay with my breath. And finally, I just said, well, uh, I'm, I'm in the room. I'm just, I'm in the room. And I focused on the fact that I was in the room. And my response was fantastic. She says, but that's not what I'm supposed to do. And I wondered, do I do that? Do I ask myself, is this what I'm supposed to do? Why not notice what's out? Just whatever is coming into your awareness. So we have this practice called open awareness that those of you who have been practicing for a while have used, which is you're just sort of aware of whatever arises. But if you're really trying to follow a particular practice, you might never do that. In my own practice, I've done that for an extended period of time, like several years, that. 
And in recent years, I've gone back to following my breath and find it to be incredibly rich in a way that I would not have said a few years ago. What this made me think about was the wisdom of not being so sure that we know the best way to develop how to be present in the moment, the best way to develop mindfulness, or even the emphasis on mindfulness. So another one of the students told me that he couldn't sit for more than 10 minutes because the energy was too intense. Uh, that was really interesting. The energy just fried him. He just he couldn't sit for more than 10 minutes. So I suggested that he sit outside. He happens to be in Australia, and it's getting on to summer. This is something you can do there. So he, he set up a place outside, and he sat outside. And lo and behold, the energy that he was experiencing had a lot more space to exist in, whether this is a mental or a physical manifestation does not matter. He was able to sit for 20 minutes. He said it was really great. And then he said, you know, sometimes the meditation was really good and sometimes, well, you know, it just wasn't. And I thought, wow. Okay, so, so this is a process of learning how to be mindful with what is. And I was really happy that he had that experience. I was really sad that he thought that the other experience was not equally good. That is, the goodness of mindfulness is just being with it the way it is and not according to what we think it should be, not according to what looks good or might be good. I maintain that the excruciating presence of absence is a a vivid and raw experience of reality. And while it may be painful, I myself am glad that I have not missed it. That I know what that means. You know, we are, we are very fond of saying there's no such thing as a bad meditation. And then we all have standards for what we know is a good meditation, right? We, we know that it's, um, you know, we, we settle in and we get concentrated and we have these unconscious things that we demand of of what we notice, instead of just noticing it and letting it be the way it is, just the way it is. It doesn't mean, so, so the other thing somebody said to me is, well, you know, a, a good meditation, even if, if I'm really agitated, then I learn something from that. What if you sit and you're agitated and you don't learn anything from that? Is that bad? And we we have unconscious standards of what we think practice is. What about just letting it be? So uh, yesterday, I walked into the kitchen, and I was aware of a lot of amorphous agitation. And it wasn't restlessness kind of agitation. It was just kind of a turning. It was just a turning. And I thought, oh, it's because I'm hungry. And then I thought, well, maybe it's because I'm hungry. But I'm actually, hungry feels a little different than that. 
So am I hungry because I'm agitated or am I agitated because I'm hungry? And the only difference that makes is the assumptions that we're laying down on what our experience is. So when I looked at it really carefully, I realized that I wasn't all that hungry, even though it was was lunchtime, it was okay. But the churning had to do with some uncertainty about an unsolved problem that I was not going to solve then, that needed to just percolate for a while. There wasn't even an, an imperative to solve it. I didn't feel like I had to solve it right away. But that churning that was just a result of this problem exists and it's not solved was causing this agitation. It's fine. It's great. It's processing. It's okay. But the mind wanted to do something about it. There was was this movement. If I'm hungry, I can fix something to eat. If I'm agitated, I have to figure out what I'm agitated about. Instead of just letting it be, churning. Oh, it's just churning. Okay. I've been there before. It's not the same thing as being apathetic. It's not saying, oh, well, I don't care what happens. It's more a function of just seeing it as it is and saying that's how it is. That's how it is. So it's allowing it to be true. It's It's not accepting it as okay. It's just, oh, that's what it is. Oh, that's what it is. So the, the corollary to uh, self-improvement is fixing the problem. Okay? So it turns out that sometimes it's appropriate to fix the problem. So for example, I've been sitting here for a while and I felt like I needed to move my leg because the circulation was stopping. And I could have left it there for considerably longer, but it's actually wiser to just move it. So I moved it. So sometimes it's appropriate to do something about it. The first time I felt it, about 25 minutes ago, I did not move it. Okay, there's this feeling, this feeling I can be with. So sometimes it's appropriate to fix it, but the mind always wants to fix it. (laughs) I have a very strong mind habit to fix things. What's useful is to develop the skill of discerning when it's skillful or not skillful to fix something. And, and not to have a fixed answer. You always have to leave it, or you never should leave it. You know, we, we kind of like to wrap things up in ribbons and put them in a box and put them on the shelf, and now we know what it is. You know, we experience something, and we label it, and now we know what it is, and we're comfortable that, with that. Now I can, I can dispense with it, but we might mislabel it. What happens if we mislabel it? So I was talking to someone today about the difference between uh, pain and a description of the pain. So pain is kind of a concept. It's not a thing. Pain is actually not a thing. You experience pain, and pain is what we call the messages that our body gives us about something that is potentially wrong. But it's just a message. It's not a thing. Sort of like a thought is not a thing. But if you, if you experience the pain and you can say jabbing or stabbing or stretching or pressure or tightness, 
Well, now you're talking about the physical experience that you're having and not your idea about the physical experience. Does that make sense? And when, when, we're, when we dispense with something by labeling it with a concept, we stop experiencing it. We're not really there anymore. So we're not really just being, just being. So what's required is to notice the space between what we notice and what we call it. Just a tiny space. Oh, there's this space. Okay. Maybe there's a different thing that might come up there. If we say, what else is happening? What else is here? What else should I be thinking? What else can I be thinking? What else is actually present in this room? When I'm sitting here, if I'm feeling the space around me, how is that affected by what else is happening? When we're speaking, the space tends to close down. When we're not speaking, it can expand. Why is that? Same space, same people. It just is. Just okay. That's interesting. What is? It doesn't have to have a meaning. It doesn't have to have a meaning. It doesn't have to have an explanation. There is value in just experiencing it. So, so we begin practice based on wanting to be free from suffering. We notice the arising of suffering. We notice this gives rise to suffering. We notice that suffering can be ended. Suffering does end. Suffering falls away. And then we have in the fourfold process of Buddhism the, the concept of the eightfold path, which is the way that, we can, that suffering can fall away. And, and the Eightfold Path has eight factors. It turns out the first five of them are wisdom factors. They're wisdom factors. They're not things that you really do, although it may sound like that. So there is wise wisdom itself. There is wise intention. There is wise action, wise speech, and wise livelihood. And all of these are kind of ethical factors, right? Yeah. So in the, in the case, say, of wise speech, it's what are the conditions under which I can say what I feel like saying? It isn't this is what's true and that is not true. It is what are the conditions that give rise to wise speaking? It is a way of being and not a direction for what you do. It's, you know, we're, we're fond of saying it's not a commandment, you know. So wise speech is, give, you know, we have, we have some criteria. Is it true? Is it kind? Is it timely? Is it useful? And then we speak. This is a wisdom, discernment, figure out how can I be this way. It's not a directive. And the other three are the practice factors, 
There's wise effort, wise mindfulness, and wise concentration. Okay, so these are the practice factors. So three out of the eight ways, the eight factors that go into suffering falling away, have to do with practice. And one of them is wise effort. You need enough effort to develop some discipline to be mindful and to narrow your focus enough to be concentrated, to settle into the practice, but not too much effort. So what I'm thinking about today is that many of us are engaged in so much effort around the practice part, we forget the five wisdom factors where we just are. And we notice, oh, this is what's happening. This is how I'm being. I have an intention. When was the last time you asked yourself your intention in life? What is your intention? What do you, what do you really, what's your aim? What is your intention? Are you connected to that intention? Sometimes we get on a train and we're just going so fast that we forget where we're going. We forget that we can learn something by getting off the train at some station, even if it's a mistake. Often we learn something because it is a mistake. Or we're surprised. The element of surprise is a very important way of being, a a factor of being that is useful for being able to make choices. If you're never surprised, you're probably not looking very closely. So one of the things that I like to think about is that the way to view, view practice is that it's like getting a pair of Eyeglasses. Okay, so these are my eyeglasses, and I can't see. Yeah, none of you have faces when I take off these glasses. Or truly, you don't even have faces. They just I can't. Everything is very fuzzy, totally undefined. I see colors. Those are pretty good. So with 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 the view with corrected vision, I'm able to see more clearly, and I can discern things. This is what practice does for us. It's, it's our prescription eyeglasses that let us see more clearly without making everything so abstract and fuzzy that we're, we don't even know what our experience is. So it changes the way we see, not what we see per se. That is, the fact that I can't see your faces doesn't mean you don't have them. It doesn't mean you don't have expressions on your face. It just means I can't see them without my glasses. So we develop practice to have a skill for meeting our experience. But the practice is not the experience. The practice is not the experience. Now, I could tent these glasses, right? So I have, I have prescription sunglasses. And, you know, they're tented, so they... They help me in bright sunlight. And I have them tinted yellow because I'm getting older and my contrast is not so great. And yellow gives you better contrast in the sunlight and, and at night. So, so mine are yellow. So they enhance in some way. They shift my view. 
So the kinds of practice we do can shift our view. So if I'm doing a practice that is following my breath, it's a narrow practice. If I'm doing a practice of open awareness, it's a broader practice. And so what I expect to see from each of those or experience from each of those is different. But the practice is what allows me to see more acutely, even if it's shifted in some way. The practice is to discover what is happening, not to redesign it. To discover what's happening now, not to redesign it, not to make it into something else, or not to pretend it's something else. So, so one of the people I talked to today was, was really great. She had, she, she had this whole series of catastrophes that happened this morning after her meditation. She needed to go to, she had a doctor's appointment that she'd been waiting for for months. And she got outside and realized she had managed to lock herself out of the house and her keys were inside. No problem, she had an extra key, but oh, she had a guest and she had given the key to the guest. He left the key behind, but he left it inside. So she didn't have a key. And she said, normally, I would have been frantic. I would have been racing around. This is a catastrophe. What am I going to do when I have to get to the doctor? And she said, I wasn't. So I guess my meditating just carried over. So I said, what carried over? And she said, well, 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 you know, when I was meditating, I was, I was you know, settled in and there. And I said, so, so what carried over? And as we were talking about it, she came to realize that what carried over was she was just in now. She was just in now. And she wasn't thinking about all the stupid reasons why she was so stupid that she locked herself out. And she wasn't thinking about the future of the catastrophe of what was going to happen because she wasn't going to get to her doctor's appointment. And she calmly called up a locksmith. And the locksmith couldn't come for several hours, so she called another locksmith. And that person came and she said, I was astounded that I never got frantic. She had never experienced that before. I get it. You know, the first time I experienced calm, it scared me to death. I'm totally serious. I was on retreat and everything was so calm. I said, oh my God, what's happened? Something's happened. I said, oh. This is what calm is. How about that? <laughs> you know, we, we get on tracks. And the real beauty is when practice leads us to just seeing this as it is. So when she was describing her sit today, because she's a beginner, she said, well, you know, my shoulder's really tight. It was really distracting. And, and as she was describing it, she was describing completely what the physical experience was. What she didn't realize was how closely tied she was to this is what's happening. Because it wasn't a a vocabulary, I think, that was common to her. So, in fact, as she was describing what had been going on with her, what she was describing is the ability to just see what was happening right now. And that that right now is what carried over when she 
was experiencing what was going on with their key. I was so excited about it. <laughs> wow, that is so great, you know. I, this is someone who has directly experienced right now what it's like, what the effect of being in the moment can do for you. It didn't make it okay that she didn't have a key, but it turned out all that extra frenzy would have been extra. And she was telling me, it just would have been extra. And I was going, yes, wow, this is so great. What a great understanding that came from just, oh, oh, this is what's happening right here. That's when meditation is working for you. It's not when the meditation is calm and beautiful. It's working for you when it allows you to inhabit your life, to experience your life. That's when it's working for you. So the message from all of this is practice. By all means, practice. But don't confuse practice with life. It's not the same thing. It's not instead of. Nobody in this room is a monk. We're living lives. We do things that monks don't do. We live much more highly stimulated lives. We have things that we love and don't love that we need to interact with. We don't need to be different than that. These are the choices we've made. You know, uh, many years ago when I was really new to practice, I talked to Joseph Goldstein, who's one of the big Vipassana teachers, one of the original Western Vipassana teachers here. And I said, you know, this Western Buddhism thing is kind of an experiment. And, you know, I am never going to be a nun. So is this going to make any difference in my life? You know, what difference can, can it make in my life? I'm not going to go sit in a monastery and meditate forever. And he actually got quite angry with me. <laughs> Told me I had every opportunity to find out. And it was my job to find out. And uh, at the time, I was kind of taken aback. (laughs) I thought it was a pretty honest question. (laughs) But he was absolutely right. Nobody can tell you what practice should be or what it will do. And I'm quite amused that almost all of the... I'm talking to 11 different people, mentoring them for this class, and every one of them has said, well, what can I expect and when will I get it? What can I expect and when will I get it? Make practice the means for experiencing your life. And if the practice that you're doing doesn't make you more available for your life, do a different practice. Try something else. Notice whether the practice feels alive. Notice whether it feels easy. I don't mean easy in the sense that it's easy to do, but you're at ease doing it, which is slightly different. And when when I sit down on my cushion, I have a moment just as I'm sitting on the cushion 
of ah. It says nothing about what comes after that. It could be an agitated sitting. It could be a peaceful sitting. It could be a short sitting or a long sitting. But the moment of sitting down is a releasing into a space where I'm giving myself the time for practice, whatever it is. And there's a sense of slipping into a warm bath. You know, just a, ah. Practice needs to be that way in general. You know, I I can tell you about that first moment because it always happens then. But also sometimes during the process, it would be nice if it happens also. A sense of, ah, this is what's happening. You know, a, a, a settling in where this feels like a natural process. If it doesn't feel like a natural process, if it feels like you have to beat yourself up, change something. Because the practice is not your life. The practice is a way for being present with your life. For understanding what is happening, what your experience is. For understanding how that experience relates to what your mind wants to do. For understanding how that experience is adding to how you see yourself. Seeing the difference between here's the experience and here's a concept that I name the experience. Get in the habit of noticing what brings you happiness. Notice it. For God's sake, don't miss it. And notice when something doesn't bring you happiness, when it brings you unhappiness. Hmm, maybe I don't want to do so much of that anymore. What is it that that experience was? I'm not talking about pleasant and unpleasant here. Cultivate one and not the other. This is what practice really is. It isn't, you can't substitute meditation for your life. Remember what you're practicing for. Recall your intention, renew your intention. You might find that your intention has shifted. You might find that your intention is actually realized and you didn't notice it. (laughs) Let go of practice that doesn't lead you to freedom. So I'm going to read you something. There is a, a poet named David Budbill, and I've always loved his poems. I love his poems. And I feel like I know him. I've never met him. And uh, now he's dead. This is his last book. It was published posthumously. So I'm going to read you one of his last poems. And it's called Sometimes. Sometimes. When day after day we have cloudless blue skies, warm temperatures, colorful trees, brilliant sun, when it seems like this will go on forever, when I harvest vegetables from the garden all day, then drink tea and doze in the late afternoon sun, and in the evening one night make pickled beets and green tomato chutney the next night, 
red tomato chutney, and the day after that, pick the fruits of my arbor and make grape jam. When we walk in the woods every evening over fallen leaves through yellow light, when nights are cool and days warm. When I am so happy, I am afraid I might explode or disappear or somehow be taken away from all this. At those times when I feel so happy, so good, so alive, so in love with the world, with my own sensuous, beautiful life, suddenly I think about all the suffering and pain in the world, about all those people being tortured right now in my name, but I still feel happy and good, alive and in love with the world and with my lucky, guilty, sensuous, beautiful life because I know in the next minute or tomorrow all this may be taken from me. And therefore I've got to say right now what I feel and know and see. I've got to say right now how beautiful and sweet this world can be. At those times when I feel so happy, so good, so alive, so in love with the world, with my own sensuous, beautiful life, suddenly I think about the suffering and pain in the world, about all those people being tortured right now in my name. But I still feel happy and good, alive and in love with the world and with my lucky, guilty, sensuous, beautiful life, because I know in the next minute or tomorrow all this may be taken from me and therefore I've got to say right now what I feel and know and see. I've got to say right now how beautiful and sweet this world can be. What I love about this is it's kind of the flip side of the excruciating presence of absence This is the joy of experiencing this beautiful nowness, this loveliness. And knowing it, knowing it. You can only know it if if you allow yourself to be there and know it. Be there and know it. It's a real incorporation of your life experience. It is not wanting to be better or worse than you are. It's just, you know, right now it's pretty good. (laughs) Hooray. That's good. Don't miss it. So those are my thoughts on the subject of just being. I hope you all know joy in just being that you have joy in your practice and that you do not become your practice nor your practice become you. Thank you. So, I welcome any comments, conclusions, outright objections. (laughs) Wait, I've been practicing. What do you mean I don't have to practice? I didn't say that.
I'm curious. When we did the exercise of spacious, the space in here, what, what was your experience? Yeah, Lewis. Mostly temperature. Temperature. You, you, you were aware of the temperature of the room. Great. Yeah. Huh. And what was the temperature? Comfortable, coolish, comfortable. Huh? Sounds like it was pleasant. Yeah. Uh-huh. Anybody else? What did you feel when I asked you what you felt around you? There's a microphone right behind you. Just push the button. Yeah. Should be great. Um when you asked about the sounds outside, mm-hmm. <clears throat> when I heard that airplane, it just, the sense of space just increased dramatically. Yeah. Uh, yeah. It was almost like a physical change. Yeah. Yes. Huh. Yeah. Were you, were you, uh, you know, uh, uh, I'm very conscious of space if, where I sit. I have a, an office with my cushions set, sitting there. And there's one sense that I get when I first sit on the cushion. And then when I look out across the room, there's a, a window seat. So there's kind of a halfway wall, and then there's a space to the window. And so depending on whether, what height I'm at, it either feels spacious or it feels cozy. And I can choose you know, what the space feels like around me by just the image that I have when I first sit down. And that space, you know, sometimes I feel crowded and sometimes I don't. <laughs> so it's interesting that the sound gave you, more, uh, gave you more space. Sight, sound, temperature, interesting. Well, the other thing you mentioned was your student who couldn't sit for more than 10 minutes. Yes. I, I mean, I've been sitting for 20 years. and huh. I, That happened to me tonight. It just happens sometimes. Yes. That really resonated with me. Yeah. yeah, it doesn't have to mean anything. But when you're a real beginner, it can be frightening. It can be, oh, I can't do this. You know, if you've had experience of it many ways over these years. So there's a confidence that comes from that. Yeah. Thank you. Anybody else? Yes. So I didn't get to close my eyes because I am a beginner. So I was one of the people that didn't get to do the exercise. But um, oh, thank you for I the. I was not clear about that. I noticed your eyes were open. Thank you for the tip, though, because um, you know, in getting started, um, I do I, I do bring it right here to the to the breath, and um, that helps get started. But then it's almost like fighting with yourself in your, in your mind because I, I feel like I want to go outside, but I'm still concentrating on being in, so that tip was helpful. Mm-hmm. So I'll say this. Uh, part, of the, part of the reason that we continue in one space is that it leads to a settling that can be very important. So sometimes it's valuable to sit through that discomfort so that you can settle in. And the longer you sit, the more you tend to settle. 
But if it's keeping you from being in the moment, pay attention to something else. Because mindfulness is an object and the awareness. Choose your object. Yeah. Thank you for staying. You're a good sport. <laughs> okay, anything else? Let's call it a night. Thank you very much. <laughs>